if we continue to push, continue to fight for um, social justice in all segments of society, all of us, if we all educate ourselves, if we all use our power and privilege to to stand up for equality, we can actually get there and make improbable possible. Welcome to episode 13 of the Outfield Podcast. After another month-long hiatus, pandemic-related things, we are now bringing another great guest on, Eric Lushen, former kicker at the University of Nebraska, great advocate, great guy. How are you doing, Eric? I'm good. I'm good, all things considered. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic and much more with um, the, the kind of racial tension that we're, we're facing in this country. So I'm doing my best, all things considered. This is the point in the show where I normally make a pandemic joke, but I can't do that because people were actually outside in the last week, and so were you. Uh, I have to ask, just in the interest, we're not going to focus on this too much. This is not the podcast for that, but I will ask what it's been like to protest horrible racial injustice during the middle of a global pandemic with a highly infectious disease. I mean, it's been like eye-opening for sure, and it's also been gut-wrenching and just heartbreaking to even know that in 2020, we still are fighting this and at such a level. Um, but it was also really heartwarming in a sense because you saw so many people of all ethnicities, gender, sexuality out in support of um, racial equality. So that was the beautiful takeaway was the, the unity in a lot of the community. I'm here in Chicago and we've had, you know, protests every day all over the city um it's been there's been a lot of tension at times and it's kind of felt like a militarized state here and there but um it's all necessary because this is something that's been uh, needed for for a very long time so i hope that we can continue to push for change for police reform for racial equality and, and so much more because we have a lot of broken systems in this country that need to really be rebuilt so they're fair and equitable for everyone. Mm -hmm. And it's also, again, it's important for us to do things uh, because if we want what we want for our community, then how can we sit by and let injustice happen to other people? Exactly, exactly. I mean, we, uh, the big thing that people are saying now, because it's technically Pride Month, which it doesn't even feel like because we've been in quarantine for three months, um, is that, you know, Stonewall was a riot. And, you know, we were, you know, out there fighting, well, not me personally, but the LGBTQ community, which was led, by, um, Stonewall was led by, you know, black and brown trans trans women, um, what was a riot in itself. So they were um, protesting police brutality then, and now we're doing that for the black community and people of color. So we need to stand up and support them just as they supported us. Absolutely. So, yes, if you can do something, you can donate. Please do that. Uh, meanwhile, in the podcast that we were going to record before all of this happened, we set this up before everything hit the fan. So in case people were wondering, because uh, <laughs> your job, you are an advocate. You work with so many people about advocacy, particularly at schools. And so obviously you can't go to schools because all of them are closed. And uh, what's been your life like as an advocate while you can't actually go anywhere? It's been interesting because um, a lot of the calls and, and meetings that were set up with different athletics departments and people around the country 
have been postponed or canceled and you're trying to find workarounds um, to, you know, get people engaged, get people activated um, and willing to, you know, fight for um, equality in sports and inclusion in sports. So it's been an interesting shift at the beginning of the year before the pandemic had this huge strategic plan all set up for, for the year. And then the pandemic hit and they're like, Oh wow. Can't really do the majority of this plan. So let's rethink that. And, you know, we've got some things in the works. So, um, and the, the ball's still rolling. We're still, we'll, we're still figuring out um, ways to engage the community and to show support and to get other people on board. So there's, there's still a lot happening. It's just, it's shifted. It's shifted gears drastically as I'm sure everyone in the, in the world has shifted their gears. But yeah, like you said, athletics departments, universities, they're, they're closed down. Um, most businesses are either closed or, you know, working from home. So we've done more online sort of stuff or through Skype and zoom, um, things like that, which is, you know, just, changing how we interact in this world. Congratulations, Zoom, on another unnecessary plug. I know, I know. <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, we'll get to more of that in a bit. But your life has been very interesting, obviously, because your story of coming out and being out is very different than a lot of the ones that have been told and the ones that have been told on this show. But we have to start, for people who don't know, you were a kicker at Nebraska, and you grew up in rural Pierce, Nebraska, I had to look up where this was. I, I like to think of myself as smart with geography, but I had no idea where this was. And yeah, it's in the middle of nowhere. So yep. you have to give people an idea of your life growing up in, you know, very rural state. And obviously when you played, this was mid 2000s, so very different time for everything, let alone for this community. So focus first on growing up because when I listened to other shows that you've been on and did the research to prepare for this show. It came to attention uh, that you did just about everything as a child. Yeah, I was highly involved in every single thing I could, I could basically be involved in um, when it came to school or outside of school. I, I mean, growing up, like I said, like you said, Pierce is really kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's in northeast Nebraska. We're three hours from Omaha, two and a half hours from Lincoln. And for those who are listening, those are like the two largest cities in the state. So we're very rural. The town of um, 1600, or at least was when I was there, it's boomed to 1700. So somehow Pierce has grown in a decade. growth. Yeah, I know, um, which is kind of surprising. But it's a little farm village, and um, it's very rural. It's extremely conservative. Uh, but like – I always say like people in the Midwest and they have big hearts. They may not know a lot of, I guess, diversity because they aren't confronted with it on a daily basis, but generally they have big hearts. Um, it's just some of the ignorance around inclusion, I think stems from not having an experience with someone who identifies as LGBTQ or someone of a different race or ability um, or gender expression. So, that that was tough because growing up in that small community, I always knew I was different and I was always told I was different by not only my peers, but even adults. I just I just never really felt like I fully belonged, even though that was technically my that was my home. Um, so that kind of hurt because I, I just didn't feel like I belonged. And I always knew in my heart that I was striving for something different, but something that was more diverse. And I knew that I 
I knew that I needed to experience different culture and, and, and stuff like that. So growing up in, in Pierce was, it was rather difficult. And then, you know, struggling with, um, my own sexuality at that time and trying to figure out, you know, is this really who I am? Am, am I a gay male? And what is gay? You know, cause in, in small town, Nebraska at that time. And I mean, I grew up in the nineties, I was born in 84. So at that time in the nineties, there wasn't talk about this on TV and the media. Um, I had no, I knew no one who was LGBTQ. So I, I really kind of struggled with that, um, kind of finding myself, but, um, I came out my junior year of high school, which was unheard of in a, in a little farm village in Nebraska at that time. 2001. Yeah. In 2001, um, came out and you know, that's before marriage equality and, and all these federal protections that we're seeing. That that might as well still be the stone age, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, True. True. And that's kind of how I was looked at. I mean, I was always made fun of for being gay long before I even came out and long before I even knew what gay was. Uh, so that was, that was, that was rough. I had a, had a hard school life, um, dealing with, with that, but then I also had a, a rough home life. Um, there was, you know, a lot of tension with, with my dad and I, um, there was a lot of physical fights and, um, arguments and, I was severely depressed and I was dealing with a lot of different things from, you know, mental health stuff and, and, um, obsessive compulsive disorder at the time. And it it was, it was very hard. Um, I was suicidal for a number of years. I honestly, I give a lot of credit to, um, my, a therapist that I had back then and also to my animals that we had and music for kind of saving my life because, Music and animals um, were kind of an escape for me. I could just relax and and just I don't know, listen to the music or play it. But the animals don't judge you for that. Exactly, exactly. And then, but then sports was kind of a place where I could escape as well. And it didn't really matter what any of my identities were. You know, if I was a good athlete, I was a good athlete, and I could kind of prove my self worth to my fellow fellow um, teammates and and people around northeast Nebraska just by my ability on on the field or on the court so I kind of became heavily involved in sports as well but I've always been competitive so it was kind of an easy an easy way for me to kind of get that that competitive side out and kind of honor that so I was involved in in growing up I did everything from football soccer baseball basketball track cross country and even a year of wrestling um so, that's, so i did everything there let me check. that's just about everything minus lacrosse which they don't play in nebraska so exactly and we don't have a swimming pool in small town nebraska for at least for the high school so we didn't have swimming um so yeah i did every sport that was offered at least at some point in my in my career growing up and then i was also involved heavily in in school, like I said, I was big into to music, so I was in every band that you can think of. But then I was, I was deemed a nerd and a geek, so I was also, you know, as top of the class, I was on quiz bowl team, and um, academic teams, and uh, national honor society, student council. You can, like, you name it, I was on it. Um, but I think that was also. Did you have time to breathe, sir? I don't think so, but I think it was kind of a 
you know, looking back on that now, like, yes, I love to be involved and I love, love to give back and just build connection with, with people. Um, so I think that's one reason why I did that. But I also think, you know, maybe subconsciously it was an escape for me to not have to deal with, um, my thoughts on either my sexuality or the depression that I was suffering through or my broken home life at the time or being bullied at school, I think that might have been one of the big reasons why I was so heavily involved was it was an escape. I was constantly active, so then my mind didn't have to think on more of the darker things that I was going through. So I kind of see it as that now um, a little more. But at the time, I don't know if I consciously was aware of that. And well, I think a lot of people go through, you know, the things that they go through and then do as much as they can, whether it's in sports or something else, because, well, firstly, you don't want to think about it. And if you're doing something, you never have to think about it. But also other people then don't think about it because it takes 10 minutes to get through all the things you're doing in high school before anybody can even talk about you. You know, well, he's doing five different sports. He's an honor society. He's playing. He's doing all these things. And in small town Nebraska, I mean, let's be fair, like a lot of people are going to think of that first. So if it takes 10 minutes to even get to, oh, by the way, he's gay, then that also makes your life easier. Does that make sense? Oh, no, it totally makes sense. Um, I also think that uh, my sports identity really helped me with opening people's hearts and minds in that community to someone who's different and someone who is gay. Because up until like my junior year of high school was when I was getting recruited by a bunch of div division one colleges around the country for different sports um, and, you know, D2 and other schools. So I think once, you know, like the University of Nebraska and um, Arizona State and all these big schools were recruiting me, um, that kind of opened their mind, like some people in the small town, opened their mind to realize that, you know, okay, well, these big programs, especially Nebraska, because if you grow up in Nebraska, Everyone is obsessed with Nebraska football, basically, because we have no professional sport there. So um, if Nebraska is recruiting you like that was just a game changer, I think, in their minds of, well, they have to know he's gay because he's already out and they're recruiting him. But they're still recruiting him, even though he's openly gay. So that, I think, was a seed, uh, a very necessary seed to kind of open their hearts and minds and be a little bit more um, inclusive with and accepting of me. I wouldn't say they're, they were fully accepting, but it was a start um, and someone had to do it. it takes so that's what, yeah. And it's, that's the beautiful thing about, about sports is it really kind of, it connects people and it unites people of all, all identities you know, it doesn't matter what your identities are. If you are all for the same team, you're all going to be there on the, um, in the stands, you know, cheering or watching the game. And it, it's, it's just that's one of the beautiful things about sports. So that really, I think, kind of helped in my hometown. Um, you know, some ways I kind of think I, I wish it wasn't that way. It didn't have to, you know, it didn't have to be that way. Why could they not accept me innately for just who I am as a person? Um, and not use my sexuality as, you know, a, a huge defining quality of me and why they can accept me or, or love me. But I understand, you know, with the different things in society and religion and whatnot, um, why they were the way they were. So 
if sports was the vehicle to create change in their hearts and minds, then that's perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. So you, you played every sport, but you went to Nebraska for football as a kicker. But did I hear you were also interested in playing defensive tackle? Yes, that was my favorite position in oh, junior explain, high. You need to explain this because uh, I have seen um, offensive linemen in high school football be kickers. That was a little interesting. I'll put it that way. I was not <laughs> expecting that. But, uh, again, he was an offensive lineman first, the kicker second. Because in high school, who the hell knows how to kick? But yeah. in your case... You were a defensive tackle that became a kicker. I'm not sure if yeah. I've that before. Yeah, so, like, I don't know. I grew much quicker than a lot of the kids in my, my grade. So in seventh and eighth grade, I was one of the biggest people um, in my class, for sure. I was definitely really tall, and I, um, I think my athletic ability was was already there. So, I mean, I wasn't necessarily – super super muscular or anything because I, I just wasn't in seventh and eighth grade but I was quick and I was strong for my size and I would shoot the gap and sack the quarterback like a lot and so I loved defensive tackle it's one of my favorite positions but then as everyone else caught up to me in size I slowly moved out further and further on the line so I've played throughout my, my career I played every position on the line um, on defense and offense pretty much except for um, snapper and or for center and and then um, played receiver so I didn't I never I never did quarterback never did defensive back or um, running back or fullback those are the only positions I didn't ever try but kicking was kind of a natural thing for me because I played soccer growing up and um, I was on the Olympic development program soccer team for Nebraska for um, seven years so it was just something I was naturally good at, and I was always known in soccer as having a really strong leg. Um, if I came across center field and uh, the keeper was out, I would shoot on goal and kick it over his head. So, you're, so you're chipping, you're chipping the keeper from the halfway line, is what you're telling me. In what middle school? Yeah. So it was just an easy thing. I never understood why. A, yeah, I never understood why other kickers in football weren't kicking the same way. Um, and then I realized, well, maybe I have something here. <laughs> well, yeah, because you're chipping people. I mean, you realize no one does that even professionally, because in order to do that, you got to be incredibly good, but also incredibly bold. I mean, yeah. I can only think of, like, off the top of my head, like three or four that I've seen. And again, I mean... Carly Lloyd in the World Cup final is the most insane, but I mean, that's, you know, one level of insane. Uh, and, and a lot of kickers were soccer players before they ended up becoming kickers. I, that, that's, that's not new, but, but dudes in middle school who are chipping people from the halfway line because the, the goalie doesn't know any better. Now, that's not something I've heard before. <laughs> yeah, that was me. So I'm uh, impressed. We, I'm impressed. Thank you. Thank you. So there you are going to Nebraska. Because obviously, when you're at home, you're going to want to stay at home. And as you talked about, Nebraska football is a big deal in that state. And when you went to Nebraska, their football program was, what's the word I'm looking for? It was a lot better than it is now. Let's put it that way. <laughs> We're rebuilding. <laughs> it's, it's statistically true. I mean, like two years earlier, they made the national title game. Whether they should have or not is another debate. But <laughs> So here you are now at, you know, it's a huge deal, Nebraska football, even when they're bad. And... You also, I think it was you came, but there was a coaching change like almost immediately. 
So you yeah. were kind of caught in the, the lurch a little bit. Yeah, it was it was an interesting time because um, myself and the other recruits that were being recruited at the, the same year as I was, um, a lot of those coaches going into our freshman year were either fired or forced to retire. So we were already starting in kind of limbo where these coaches that were coming in were bringing in the athletes they had recruited at their other respective colleges that they, they worked at. So there was, you know, that, that weird idea of, are they going to have favoritism for their recruits versus the ones who've been recruited and already signed? Um, and so that was a very interesting time period. And then while I was there, I went through, you know, more coaching changes and um, like really changing the program when we, you know, they fired Frank Solich and then in came coach Bill Callahan with the more West coast offense. So it was, it was hard, but I mean, Nebraska football is a really powerful thing and it's not just the, like the tradition and the camaraderie and, and stuff of Nebraska football, but Nebraska's like the program like not just athletically, but academically is extremely strong and it's the strongest program in the country when it comes in terms of their athletics department for like academic All-Americans and stuff like that. So me as kind of that, that, that jock identity, but also nerd and geek identities, that was a big sell for me to go to Nebraska because I knew that you know, my athleticism might not always be here. I could get injured, which was in my case what happened. Um, so I'm going to need to use my brain at some point. So I ultimately chose Nebraska because they cared also about um, my ac academic side, whereas other universities were like, oh, well, we don't really care about that. Just come here and kick a football. Don't, so Don't break the illusion. They act, Of course they care about academics. <laughs> they care about anything else these are amateur athletes their brains are going to be more important than their flaws what are you talking about yeah subtle enough mm-hmm very subtle <laughs> uh so now not only are you going to nebraska to play football but you're already out to your small town and as you said presumably they knew they had to have because in a small town of 1600 people word would probably get around very fast i've never lived in a town that small so i would never be able to know but oh, yeah, the entire I mean, Northeast Nebraska now. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, that's, I mean, that still isn't a lot of people, though. Let's be fair. <laughs> fair. It's, it's just the facts. It's just the facts. I can, we have the census data to prove it. So now you have to do this all over again. Or in many ways, you've got to be accepted by a whole new group, at a different group entirely, because small town rural Nebraska is one thing. Now you've got a football team. That's got people from not just Nebraska, but everywhere. And you don't know what's going to happen when you get into that room. So there are some stories you've told uh, about being out at that time that I think are really interesting. So I want you to tell them because, again, consider this is mid-2000s. This isn't now. And this is a very, very big program with a huge amount of following. And its fans are kind of similar to the state, you know, that they're in. So maybe you're dealing with a whole other people who might not be all that okay if there's an openly gay player. Yeah, um, it was completely different time. I mean, I started at the program in fall of 2003, again, before marriage equality and, and all sorts of other stuff. I mean, it was, I think, 
a few years after Matthew Shepard was brutally murdered in Wyoming, which is yes. yeah, Nebraska's neighboring state. So it's like the culture and the climate, not only in greater society, but also then in athletics at that time was definitely not near as inclusive as it is today. So that was, that was hard. But like I always said to myself um, that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be my authentic self. I'm going to, be who I am and people are going to learn to love and accept me for, for all my qualities, for my character, my morals, values, ethics, um, and not use my sexuality as something to define me and ultimately like pick and choose whether they receive or reject me. So I just kind of went in and I'm like, I'm going to be myself, but I wasn't, I've never really been one to like jump around in rainbow gear or something, which is totally fine if someone does that but that's never been me and that definitely wasn't i'm i'd say i'm more that now than i was back then for sure because you know i'm rocking the be true nike line with the the rainbows and stuff but um back then i definitely wasn't that person so going into the program i wasn't um just gonna run around saying hey everyone i'm i'm here i'm queer or you know hey look at me i'm gay but if someone asked me i was gonna be open and honest about it and it it just took a couple months. Um, and those couple months initially were really, really rough because I'd walk into anywhere. Um, there'd be other student athletes, whether it's my teammates or other teams and people would huddle up and laugh and crack jokes about me. And it was very unwelcoming. And I had, you know, homophobic teammates that would say slurs under their breath or blatantly to my face. I had a few physical altercations, um, one in particular uh, from I like to call him I call him John because I don't I like to keep him anonymous but um, yeah I was just walking down a hallway of past Husker greats that are painted on the walls I thought I was the only person in this hallway late at night after practice one night and I kind of turned a corner and there was John coming at me and as I walked past him he yells out a homophobic slur and slams me up against the wall as the portraits are shaking behind me and I was legitimately scared for my life in that moment um, because he's a huge, huge human being. I'm, you know, a kicker. Yeah, I'm, I was 195, 6'3", but I'm talking like upper 200s, maybe low 300s, big beast of a human being. And Probably, um, you're talking about it because this is black shirts defense, if he's, if he's a defensive yeah. player. So, I mean, again, that gives you an idea of, uh, of the scale we're talking about here. Yeah, not something that, you know, as the, I guess, as I was deemed the gay kid on the, on the team, um, that you want to experience because there's so much hate and vitriol coming from him and some of his buddies at that time that I didn't know how I was going to even survive playing football there. Um, but I was just like, you know what, just keep your head up, you know, prove them wrong, work extra hard out there on the field and in the weight room and show them that, you know, through your athletic ability and through just being your authentic self that you are no different than anyone on the team. Like you're ultimately, you're there to play football. You're, it, it doesn't matter what your sexuality is. And that's kind of what I did. And um, a couple months into uh, my career there, I sat down to, to eat lunch with two friends on the team um, who I met on recruiting trips and became really close with Corey McEwen and Sean Hill. And, they just blatantly asked me, you know, 
they're like, hey, pretty boy. And yeah, I always tell people that was the nickname they gave me, and it stuck to this well, day. From did you not, th did you not think that that was a euphemism for something? I mean, I did for sure, because I also got other nicknames like Sugarfoot and, and stuff like that. Dude, these people, so, we talk about subtlety. Speaking of another comment from earlier in this show, good lord. Yeah. Yeah, so they're like, hey, pretty boy, we have a question. And I immediately knew at that moment what that question was going to be. And I was like, well, here we go. Um, and they just go, are you gay? I said, yeah, is that a problem? And they just go, nope, we thought so. Just wanted to check. And then we just talked about other stuff and went to practice. And so it was one of the easiest coming out experience experiences of my life. Um, but because of, I mean, they were, they were very very loud and um they're kind of the jokers on a team so everyone loves them but they didn't really keep their mouths shut i didn't really expect them to i didn't really care either but by the end of the day the entire football program knew and i swear by the end of the week the entire college and most of the northeast nebraska knew and facebook had just come out around that time so uh i always had interested in men on there so i was hearing from people from all over the world or country i should say um at that time about, you know, what I was just kind of what I stood for as an openly gay athlete at, at Nebraska. And I'd say the vast majority was positive, but there's also a lot of hate that I got, I, I got because of who I was at that time um, and at that place. So um, that was a very, it was a very hard time for me with mental health too. And I think we're realizing nowadays more in sports, like especially when we get into professional and um, collegiate sports, how much things like anxiety, depression, and mental health issues, um, and little things with, let's say, other health, like nutrition, can affect someone's play. And I always think, what if I didn't have to deal with all that stress, anxiety, and depression of, you know, will they ever accept me? Will they ever play, play me because of my sexuality? If I didn't have to deal with that, how much better could I have even been? And at that time, like... For reference, like I in high school in a practice, like the farthest field goal I ever kicked was 73 yards, which is insane. And we would readily in practice at Nebraska, we'd go back to 65 yards for field goals sometimes. And I had a leg, I had accuracy, but I was gay. And um, there was a lot of controversy around that. I had some some coaches make it known to me that it didn't matter how good I was, I wasn't going to see the field. Um, so that was a hard, hard pill to swallow. Why would they do that? Now, I, I know why they would do that in many ways, because they probably don't want to hear it from, you know, the people who pay their salaries, i.e. the exactly. And I just don't, I just, it never really made sense to me. And again, I know it's a different world, and I was not at any point knowing that world at that point. Uh, but mm -hmm. it just it doesn't make sense because if the dude's good and we also know from experience now hashtag college kickers you're it's Russian roulette if you got somebody that's good especially in a sport like football where kicking really does matter why would you do that why would you do that yeah there was I mean there was it was a big controversy back then I felt I always had um, I mean not only did I hear stories of boosters threatening to pull money if they played me or there's times where 
I mean, one in particular, I know for sure, because I actually heard it from my father and heard it a little bit myself was um, a Huskers radio station at the time had an hour long conversation about is Nebraska ready for an openly gay football player. And they didn't mention my name, but most of it was highly negative and homophobic. So that was kind of the climate back then. Um, So I think there was a lot of pressure. And also at that time, I don't think anyone in sports was proactive and not just at Nebraska, but all around the world. No one was being proactive with LGBTQ inclusion. So they were kind of like a deer caught in headlights with me coming into the program like that. So it was very reactionary. And um, so I like looking back on it and after, you know, all my growth from then, I can see why some of the reaction was the way it was. Does that mean it was necessary does it you know or or right no definitely not but i mean if i had to be that person to create a lot of positive change not only at nebraska but throughout sports then it was totally worth it and i mean now i get to use the experiences i went through to help others and to help other athletics departments and companies and and stuff grow and create infrastructures of inclusion which is it's a beautiful thing. So all those hardships are worth it to me. And you didn't end up even playing, not just because they probably weren't going to let you because of homophobia, but you, as you said on another show, you worked so hard to prove that you would be worth it to say to people, you can't define me by my sexuality. I'm it's just as good as you. You probably overworked yourself. And that's why okay. you ended up having to stop playing because you probably overworked yourself into injury. Yeah. I mean, I kind of always had back problems since like sixth or seventh grade. But once I was in college, um, again, I was, I was, I had to prove myself worth. I worked extra hard in the weight room and then I would go to the campus rec center and work out even more. And I, I was never the fastest or most agile person on the team, but I couldn't, I couldn't lose a sprint or an agility because I had to show my worth and my value. And honestly, through doing that, I learned, I earned a ton of respect from, from some coaches and from a lot of my teammates, um, because they're like, Oh my God, here's the gay guy beating me like constantly. And so I think that kind of opened their eyes a little bit more to be, to, you know, get rid of some of that toxic masculinity idea of, you know, gay guys aren't good at sports or aren't athletic um, and all that sort of BS that, you know, a lot of young men have been told. So I think I earned a lot of respect from that. But through that overuse and um, just pushing myself beyond the limits, I ended up, you know, basically breaking my back. I had a severe spondylolisthesis um, in one of my lower vertebrae. And both um, arms of my vertebra were completely severed, and it was just hitting my spinal cord. So I, I couldn't even walk one day after a conditioning session. I couldn't even stand up and kind of had my moments of para- uh, semi-paralysis. And that was extremely scary, and I realized that I, I needed to get that checked. Um, and that was hard because, I mean, that was – two and a half years into my career at Nebraska, I had redshirted my first year and I spent two years proving my self-worth, um, literally blood, sweat, and tears. And they, it finally, I was finally getting my shot. It looked like going into fall camp 
um, the season before I had my spinal fusion, uh, they finally they, they listed me as one of the front runners for the starting kicking position. And in fall camp, I was accidentally roughed by a, a teammate and friend of mine and um, partially tore my upper hamstring. And that left me out for um, almost all of fall camp. And by the time I got back, they already wrote me off because um, they had already given the gay guy a shot. And it was it was really hard. Uh, my the fellow kicker at the time won um, All-American honors that year. And I remember some of the things he said to me was, you know, this one time he said, this award is just as much yours as it is mine because um, we, he's like, we both know who the better kicker is. And other things that he had said to me and um, not only him, but other teammates and uh, teammates' parents about, you know, are they ever going to play you? We see you practicing. We see this and we know your ability, but it didn't happen. And I have to accept that harsh reality um, that it it didn't happen. But I also have the other reality of, like I said, the, the story of struggle and then ultimately love and acceptance um, is a beautiful story. And it now gives me um, a way to give back in a way that I never could have imagined. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's interesting because at the time, I, I think of it as the trained journalist, like, and you said, and you've said this before, I think that most of the people who cover Nebraska football must have known. And it just oh, never sure. talked about. And so, and so it was so funny because when I was reading these stories, when you're starting to tell your stories publicly, and this is right around the time Michael Sam came out or, or just at there, there, thereabouts, something like that. It was literally, it was two days after because media on that day was reaching out to me and flooding my inbox. And finally I was like, if this story can help just one person, I have to share it. And I did. And it was it's one of the things years, but, done. I mean, it, it's a point to make now. Uh, so it's like, he's the first openly gay college football player. And you're like, well, not really. Cause I was just no <laughs> bothered to talk about it publicly kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. No one was ready at that time. I mean, this was 2003. Um, we didn't even, we didn't have openly gay athletes. We, we didn't have, um, the representation in media and in movies and television. So it was, it was just a different time. And like you mentioned, uh, that, people in sports media and journalism at the time at Nebraska had to have known. I 100,000% know they knew, the, uh, two of them in particular, because they would be they were at practice almost daily, and they would talk with me about it explicitly. They w and um, even one of them was, I mean, I don't want to, I, mean, I guess I'm not sharing his name, so it, it wouldn't matter, but I did, yeah, a journalist identified as gay himself, and uh, I would see him at one of the bars when the on the rare occasion that I actually had time to go out because I did chemical engineering and football, so I was a little bit too busy. Um, and so I knew they knew, but in some ways I feel like at least those two people that explicitly would talk to me about it, um, journalists, I think they were trying to protect me because they knew they the country, especially Nebraska, um, just wasn't ready. And I mean, it's just, in a, in a way it is what it is. And I have to, I just have to accept that and that's okay. And it's, it's interesting seeing where sports has come and where inclusion in sports is now. And we still have a long ways to go, but 
from where it was to now, it's almost it's almost night and day, but there's still a ton of work to do, which is why I tirelessly fight for this cause and work in this space day in and day out. Well, as I like to say, it's we're at the center of the Earth, basically, at the Earth's iron core, and now we're kind of close to the surface. Kind of. Yeah. And again, it's infinite progress from absolute zero, which yeah. I think again i think gives perspective of just where this was and where it is and i'm not discounting the progress you can't discount the progress but let's be fair we didn't start from a good place here yeah and we can't be complacent anymore like we even saw with like marriage equality there was a lot of people that were like okay we've done it but yeah we've done that but there's also so many other federal protections that we need with housing and donate and, blood if we want to yeah yeah, so there's so many other areas. Yeah, it's it's but, yeah. you're right about that. It's just it's just it it is amazing again to think about where we've come from, but again, starting from basically nothing to yeah. where we are now, and there's obviously so much more work to do. So for you, after Nebraska football is over, we've got about eight years between you coming out publicly. But what are you doing in that time, and how are you? At that point, what are you doing, and how does your sexuality play into what you're doing before you know you really start getting involved with what you're doing now? Good question. Um, so, as I have mentioned many times, one of my big identities is what some people would call nerd or geek. And I, um, after football ended, when my career ended with the, the spinal fusion, it was extremely difficult for me to be involved in sports or even read anything about them. So I kind of became a recluse um, from sports, but I decided I need to, you know, put my head in the books, finish my degree in chemical engineering. And I knew that what I really wanted to do was go to grad school for a PhD in biomedical engineering, because I know my purpose on this planet is to give back and to help and to heal others. And I knew that I had the mind that could potentially develop something that could help millions or billions of people. And so that really kind of drove or drove me into to that field. And I, I thought it was fascinating. So I moved to Chicago, which was my favorite city in the U.S. at the time. And I still would say it probably is. I mean, it's got its ups and downs. But um, moved to Chicago and after a two-year break um, from undergrad because I needed – I needed time off after the spinal fusion, after football and all the the stuff I went through and with that and then chemical engineering, I needed to breathe. <laughs> so I took two years of breathing and then went and got my PhD in um, biomedical engineering at the University of Illinois at Chicago and studied uh, novel drug delivery to the brain and central nervous system. And Again, throughout did, that did time, you have time, you needed the time to breathe considering you did all of your things and then you decided, you know what, I'm just going to go casually get a doctorate and you know yeah it was stuff it was a lot <laughs> sometimes i look back and i'm like why did i do all that but i mean everything has changed you, you don't know the hell what you're doing in your 20s especially after what you went through i mean i can imagine wanting to do every single thing <laughs> possible and that's what you were doing since you were a child so it doesn't it that's doesn't all feel all different you know yeah, exactly. I feel like that was kind of one of my big identities was just a, you know, jack of all trades sort of sort of mentality and push, push, push and do everything you can to the best of your ability. I think in some ways 
some of that stems from, you know, when you come from a, like growing up an area where let's say you're, you're made fun of or discriminated against or have a broken home or anything like that. I think for a lot of people, um, at least for myself, cause I can only speak to my experience that kind of lit a fire in me. And I know as like a teenager, I would sit there and think I'm going to prove these people wrong. I'm going to prove them that my life has value and worth. And I think that kind of became um, kind of like became part of my core and in my subconscious. And that's kind of been how my life just transpired after that. And now I actively have to tell myself, Eric, you need to slow down <laughs> because, you know, I do need to breathe. I need to take care of myself because, I mean, not only did I have my spinal fusion, but during grad school, with pushing myself extra hard. And I don't know if it's because of the stuff I went through in sports and my spinal fusion, I developed a neuromuscular disorder. So um, that's something I fight day in and day out. It's an invisible disability that I have that most people don't know when they see me that I'm in chronic intense pain. But that's one of my realities. And I have to play the cards that I have the best way I can. And so that's what I do. And um, during grad school, when I was literally I was like supposed to be three months out from graduation with my PhD. That's when Michael Sam came out. Um, what was it? February 11th of 2014. And I just got thrown into the media and I told my boss at the time, I said, I have to postpone graduation a year because I have to honor what's happening. And, um, I had already done all my classes. My dissertation was basically done because I had so many journal articles that I could just put them kind of as chapters of my dissertation and kind of make them all flow together. But I started in a lot was just public speaking and motivational speaking at different events and on radio and the news um, and whatnot. And then that turned into companies and athletics departments uh, asking me to come in and, and do training on diversity and inclusion. And from there, I became connected with all these wonderful people in the LGBTQ sports movement and um, went to the Nike sports uh, LGBT sports coalition summit in um, Portland, Oregon a number of years back and met a woman by the name of Nevin Capel. And we just connected and knew that the universe brought us together and we were going to work on something. And that something um, became what is now known as the LGBT Sports Safe Inclusion Program, which is what I now run um, on a regular basis, where we work with athletics departments, um, rec, team, or rec sports, and pro teams and leagues on building infrastructures of inclusion. We work on um, programming, policy, and public awareness initiatives. So it's, it's amazing to see how everything kind of <laughs> worked out in a way that I never would have imagined. You know, if you would ask me 10 years ago, would I see myself in this space? I would have said no, just because I didn't know that was a possibility. And I didn't even know that I could do that, I guess. But when I got thrown into the media in February of 2014, I quickly realized that all the hardships I went through in my life, not just in sports, but you know, my broader life, um, like they happen for a reason and I can now use these stories and experiences to help inspire and uplift others. And for those who are, are less privileged than me, and I can use my own power and privilege to, to help other communities and people that 
maybe suffering or or discriminated against and so that even though I was still technically not fully graduated with my PhD I had to do this and it was the easiest decision of my life although I'm going against a very very expensive education and a ton and tons and tons countless hours of hard work um, into a completely different career I mean, I, I finished my PhD, I graduated, I got that, but I never once even went into biomedical engineering. I just went straight into diversity and inclusion world, and I never looked back. And I know that this is where I'm supposed to be. It's where I belong, and it's where my voice is needed now. Um, and I can use my PhD um, because that PhD is a privilege that I, I have. I mean, that title affords me some respect in certain areas that other people don't get. Um, which I think is ridiculous at times, but I can use that to, to help uplift others. So that's what I try and do. Um, and so spent a lot of time doing, and I have to ask about this now, cause I know people, friends of mine who are in that space and like that, but what is it to do what you do on a daily basis? Give people an idea of what your life in a normal universe minus a pandemic and racial strife would have looked like. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of behind behind us behind the scenes things that was hard for me to say for some it's reason. Uh, we just <laughs> talked about how we're great at you know talking in public and doing all these things, and then we forget the English language completely. It happens. It happens. Um, so yeah, behind the scenes, I do a lot of different things from um, reaching out to a number of our different member institutions. I mean, we've been in contact with well over 200 universities. Um, so either reaching out, seeing, you know, what's, what's needed on campus right now, where they're at working on inclusive policy enactment. If they have a, like a public awareness initiative, like a LGBT sports safe game night or a pride night that they want to do, how do we best go about doing that? Um, sometimes they're, they're wanting us to come onto campus, um, and do actual inclusion programming where we go through and give them the necessary tools and resources to be inclusive. You know, we always say when we're there, like we're not there to change anyone's values or beliefs, but we're there to give them those tools and resources to be inclusive because, you know, we all come from different backgrounds and um, different religions and all sorts of things that are very big core identities to us that we bring into a space and we can still be all those things, but still be respectful of each other. And so we go in and we, we do these trainings. So that's a, a big part of it. Um, and then social media, trying to do that, uh, <laughs> ignite um, volunteers, which, by the way, um, selfish plug. If there's anyone that wants to get involved in LGB LGBT sports safe and our mission, please reach out to me. Um, my uh, handles are just at Eric Lucian or just Eric at LGBT sports safe um, is my email address because we're always looking for people who want to support and, and give back in a way um, through through our organization. So that's kind of what a day in the life of LGBT Sports Safe or diversity and inclusion um, work that I do, advocacy work is. There'll be times where I go like and, and speak on different panels or like today, be on a podcast. <laughs> um, or I even do stuff with um, some local uh, representatives and, and stuff here in Chicago and different organizations here in the city. So the work is 
it's very diverse um, and it's not always just sports related for me. Um, but sports is definitely my main area right now, especially with uh, LGBT sports safe. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a chance to explain, like what happens, let's say you're going on to Nebraska and you're talking with whoever. Let's say it's Scott Frost, because every day is Scott Frost Day. That's not a joke <laughs> that isn't old yet. Anyway, I'm sorry, I had to do it. Uh, so let's just say that's happening. So what would that look like for you? I mean, when we're on campus, it's usually a day, sometimes two days of programming where we'll meet with um, all the coaches and administrators and go through like uh, programming. Um, we, we don't like to talk at people, so we like to get uh, them involved um, because you know what we live in a YouTube generation anyway where we want information fast we want to you know kind of apply it so we go through kind of an interactive um, presentation and learning experience um, around inclusion in sports kind of discuss some of the the challenges in inclusion in sports and then we'll also do um, a, a student athlete session where all the student athletes are there We'll have uh, meetings with uh, leaders in not only the athletics department, but throughout um, the rest of the university. So let's say the LGBTQ Resource Center or maybe a provost or chancellor of the university will all meet together because we try to unsilo the athletics department. Um, I think historically sports has been very siloed and um, kind of keep to themselves, but we're realizing more and more that we need to kind of have a a more um, broader approach to these inclusion efforts and that athletes have a voice and coaches have a voice and a power that kind of resonates with a greater community outside of just sports. So we need to utilize that to to help drive this change. So we do a lot of different meetings like that. We'll have um, even private kind of um, one-on-one meetings with anyone who doesn't feel comfortable talking with us after a presentation or a programming session. So it's a lot of, lot of um, in-depth discussion and education. We're heavily education-focused um, when we're on campus, for sure. But then we also, at least with the student-athletes, we do a, a, a kind of a keynote session part um, with student-athletes where we tell our personal stories um, and share a lot of our identities so that they can see themselves in one of our identities, then start to feel empathy and then want to do better and give them takeaways on how they can do better and show up for their fellow students or student athletes and friends and, and people outside of sports. So that's kind of like what would happen if we were on campus. Um, I have spoken with um, coach Frost when he was in town for the big 10, um, meetings. I, I spoke with him a couple times privately, but I haven't had a chance to speak with him um, at the university just yet. But whenever I go back to Nebraska, um, I always visit the athletics department if I'm not there to do work with them specifically, because I mean, it's it's a place that I spent a number of years and I still have friends that, that work in the athletics department. And um, people that really champion, champion inclusion there. So it's always a nice th- place to go back to. And it's also a very hard place for me to go back to. I always set out maybe 30 minutes to just go by myself out onto the field and feel all the emotions, like 
cry, happy, you know, all of it, because that is kind of fuel that I need at times to recharge and get back out there and do the good work because I don't want anyone to have an experience um, that I had or to not have an opportunity to, to play or um, be in sports and be their authentic self. Um, so it's, it's kind of a necessary thing for me is, you know, my, my visits back into Memorial stadium. Mm-hmm. And not, not when they're winning all that often. Sorry. I had to mention it. Uh, it it's we're, true. We're we rebuild. <laughs> it's a rebuild from a rebuild from a rebuild. It's just like Maryland, except Maryland's always been bad. So, you know, there's a, <laughs> anyway, uh, I do remember, I think I had this right. There was a coach in Nebraska who either said homophobic things or was, it was something like that. I think you were involved with talking with him or talking around an issue. Like, do I have this story right? Something from like I, think I, know what you're, I think I know what you're alluding to. A couple years ago. I don't remember it specifically. Oh, oh okay. You're talking about Ron Brown, I think. So that is, if I get this, if I'm remembering the story right, is this is the kind of the place where you put your work in action, right? Yeah. Um, so he kind of testified a number of years ago, Coach Ron Brown. I, I like to preface this with, I should say, um, he was a coach for a, a little while while I was at Nebraska, and um, he was never like disrespectful to me. Um, he was always very nice and kind and. And stuff. I don't know what happened in meetings, you know, behind closed doors. But to me personally, he was nice. He's uh, very involved with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and he testified a number of years ago um, before the Omaha City Council against a bill that would protect um, LGBT people from disc- discrimination, and um, that was very controversial. Because he even used, I think, um, his address as Memorial Stadium, um, which was kind of strange when he was in there talking. Well, he got hired back on to coach at, or not not to coach, but as director of player development at the University of Nebraska um, a few years back when, um, actually two years ago, when Coach Frost took over. And so that brought up a lot of questions in the community of, you know, Nebraska says that they've been changing and evolving and becoming more inclusive. Well, then why would you hire someone who's been so outspoken against the rights of the LGBT community to be in charge of player development, which is kind of important um, because you don't want to have someone who is not going to have a diversity of thought um, directing your players, you know, in that way and trying to grow them into better human beings outside of sport. So that was a big controversy and there was a big backlash. So I just kind of wrote a piece about, about that and um, what I felt um, like, what are the implications of this and what are the optics and um, what Nebraska needs to do, you know, moving forward with that. But um, that I think is the piece you were alluding to. I think this is it. Yeah, it was just, it was, uh, interesting hire because it's it was a macro aggression you know hiring someone with that sort of past to you know without really explaining why they hired someone in that position um, with that sorted past it, it was it was a lot for the community to handle and um, 
I kind of approached it as, you know, yeah, this is confusing on a number of levels to many people, many Husker fans, but there's an opportunity here and the opportunity is for more education and growth. And so, you know, the, that new um, Husker football coaching staff kind of landed themselves in that uh, more inclusive athletics department than what it was back when coach Brown was there years prior. So, you know, they need to have that continued education around diversity and inclusion in sports and, and stuff like that. So that's kind of, what I had um, kind of pushed for, for the University of Nebraska. And one thing that's amazing with Husker Athletics is, I mean, from where they were when I was there, being very reactionary and not having anything set up um, because no one in the country did at the time, now they're very proactive around inclusion in sports. And, I mean, they were one of our founding members in the LGBT Sports Safe Inclusion Program, along with Oregon and Northwestern. And... They have been doing now yearly. They have a, a like a diversity and inclusion summit that they've been doing, um, which I was uh, like honored to be um, one of the keynotes at the first one that they did several years back. So they're they're putting they're putting um, I guess action to their words now around inclusion. They've had LGBTQ inclusion in sports training for all their coaches and administrators and athletes. And they're, they're having discussions, and now they have a person in charge of diversity and inclusion within the athletics department, Dewan Baker, who's doing great work. Um, so they're doing good work now, um, but there's still, there's still work to be done, not only there, but everywhere. Mm-hmm. How much do you think, let's say, this would have been different? I mean, we know it would have been different, but let's say this hire in 2003 probably wouldn't have even been you know, questioned. You know what I mean? Like something like this wouldn't have even been a thought. And then even 14 years later to have Nebraska football fans, again, not, I would say, you know, the most diverse group of people on planet Earth to start going, wait a minute, is this okay? I mean, even in 14 years, you know, however long it's been, that is a pretty big shift. And when you think about college football, it's still inherently kind of conservative. And particularly in a place like Nebraska, it's pretty conservative so to see that change and to see them even debate it whether they hired him or not is I would say a, a step in the right direction and I know I think you'd say the same thing yeah for sure so now when you think about people coming out in college athletics in particular I'll focus on college football here for a second uh, you I guess if you don't think about this as much as we do maybe you'd be surprised at just how many people have actually come out in college football, like even no matter the level, like there's there's a good number of people, and for football, obviously there's more players on a team, but there's more yeah. football players or past players in college in the NFL than in any other sport, and you know based on your experiences and what you would think about football, that it, to some people wouldn't make sense, but why do you think then that there have been so many that have come out that have played college and professional football? I mean. I think, I mean, one, I would say statistically, it's going to be more likely just because, like you said, there's at least 80 people on a roster and a college team. So that's a lot compared to like a men's basketball team or hockey or baseball. Um, So statistically, it's more likely. But then also, I think people are realizing now um, after they've played um, and even some that are still playing that have come out, at least in college, uh, that 
they have a unique opportunity to help the movement and help create more positive change. And they're wanting to do that. And they want to show that LGBTQ individuals are in all walks of life and in these hyper-masculine sports like football. So I think that's, you know, some of it as well, for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's also funny when you think about just, you know, some of these people used football as like they're hiding, in other words, from their sexuality. The Ryan O'Callaghan story, football was his beard, mm-hmm. which is, I, I yeah. can't think of a better way to put that. And, may, and it maybe makes more sense because if you're thinking of like, what is the most masculine thing you can think of? Okay, football. No one's going to suspect I'm gay in football. Like, you start to put these things together and you go, okay, now this makes a lot more sense why there's just not just the numbers, but there's just more, I think there's more of a connection with football and sort of these ideals, you know, and for people when you're growing up and you don't know any better, you could say, well, I can hide this really easily here. No one's going to suspect it. And in many other sports, that's just not a thing that happens. I mean, that's, yeah, very valid point. And I, I mean, I can attest to that, that too. I mean, it just, it makes sense. I think it, I think it manifests like the cultures of the sports. Well, they're all broadly similar. They're all different, you know, in, in, in some unique ways, even if they're small. And, and maybe that's why in football, you just see more of them, period. I mean, I, I try to figure this out as somebody who has focused on, you know, trying to help people tell their stories and learn more about, you know, why it is different in specific sports. And I've talked about that on this show. And football is obviously a sport where there's so many people that follow it. It's the biggest sport in this country, so obviously it has the biggest, you know, impact. But has mm-hmm. there been any of these, um, these coming out stories just of people in football that you know that, was, uh, that it impacted you the most and was like, one of the stories that stuck home with you the most, because there's, I mean, there's a lot of them as opposed to in other sports, but I think, I think in football, when it, when people hear these stories, it kind of hits them more. You know what I mean? Because if it's, if it's, there's just more of them, of course, but also because of the place that football holds for all of us culturally, not just even as sports fans, like people coming out in football just seems to mean more, if it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, for me, I can kind of. I can relate to a lot of these coming out stories. Um, I think one that hit me the hardest just because of my struggles back in high school and junior high with um, severe depression and um, near suicide was Ryan O'Callaghan's because of how he said, you know, his plan was after football to kill himself. And that just kind of really struck, struck me really deep. Um, because of like the immense sadness in that statement and the hurt and the pain that you can feel. And I know what that hurt and the pain in the is. And even when like I played football at Nebraska and I'd, you know, I call home, I'd say a f- several times a week, but maybe once every week or two, I was crying on the phone and my parents were like, you know, is it worth it for you to continue to kill yourself to try and, get playing time or be valued or respective or respected if you know they're not going to to really see you as an athlete because you're gay um and that was that was really hard so like that mental health aspect of ryan's story really struck home with me because i lived that like a lot and uh, i think his was probably 
a little bit more impactful just because of that. But, you know, you can look at a lot of these other stories from out um, football players and their mental health is a huge part of every one of them. Mm-hmm. I, I f- think that's an underestimated part of a lot of this because we, we say that the damage that's done, if you hear this language and you go through an environment where you fear you're not accepted or the fear that you fear you're not going to be accepted, you know, you go through all these calculations in your head of things that are going to happen and that drains you, right? Like, you're you're always constantly thinking like three steps ahead. What's going to happen? How do I hide this? And, you know, that does a ton of damage to people. And I don't think that's something that is quite accepted a lot yet by the broader community of people that when you're trying to convince yourself and others that you're something you're not, you drain yourself of all of this energy that you have. And exactly. it, is, it is stark when you do that. You, come, you become tired really easily. I think it's the term called emotional labor, I think, is, is the way that it was, it was described. And that was doing a job you didn't want to do, having to put on a face that is not actually what you're doing, and that hurts. And that emotional labor is exactly, I think, the way that you put it with somebody who's trying to come out and trying to figure out their sexuality. And, you know, in a space like football where you might not be accepted, and if you fear you aren't going to be accepted, you're going to do things you wouldn't otherwise do, and then you galaxy brain it, basically. Exactly. It's very interesting, you know, um, like the amount of energy an LGBTQ athlete spends either trying to hide their identity in sports or just trying to belong when they are open in sports. And it's exhausting. Like, we constantly, as an LGBTQ athlete, we walk, or as an LGBTQ individual in general, you can even say, walking into a space, you're constantly surveying your surroundings to see whether it's going to be inclusive or not. Are you going to be received or rejected? And that was one of the big things that was so exhausting for me was constant. I felt like I was constantly walking on glass. And like, is it ever going to be like soft sand? I don't know. But I kept walking through the glass in hopes that it was going to be soft eventually. And it, it took a long time until it was semi soft and then my career ended. (laughs) So, um, I feel that's what's kind of sad and really disheartening about that is, and and I guess another big reason why we need to have such a big push for not only inclusion in sports, but inclusion and equality and equity in general for everyone and all their differences and identities is because we need, we're, we're all part of humanity and the human race and we need to show up for our brothers and sisters and just give everyone a fair and equitable shot. Life would be just so much easier if we came from a place of love instead of a place of fear. And I mean, gosh, I look back and I think sometimes what would my experience be if I would, if, if this was 15 years later, you know, 2003 was 2018 when I started football it would have been drastically different. Mm-hmm. Um, or, if, or even if back in 2003, if I would have even known to go to the media and actually say, no, share my story. I didn't know that was a possibility. And I also didn't know if that was safe. That was the big thing. And I was worried about my safety a lot during my football career. So that was a very risky thing for me to do. And I didn't do it. Um, but I mean, we're in a different time now and, and that's kind of beautiful that we are pushing for 
a lot of equality in all these different spaces now. Yes. And I want to talk to this question, which is uh, something important as we start to wrap things up here. It is the idea of coming out publicly and telling your story publicly. There is always a debate, I think, amongst people like, do you come out publicly? Is that really the sign of inclusion and acceptance that we want, or is it done more behind the scenes? And for me, as somebody who likes to tell these stories, I think the public coming out really does bring this story to a wider breadth of people, which even if you're accepted behind the scenes, there's something different about telling everyone. You know what I mean? So where is the balance in wanting people to come out publicly or is it okay if they were somebody like you who was out to their team but not publicly and there was broader acceptance and now I think there would be a lot more. But is there, is, what's the nuance in that discussion for, you know, for people who want to see, you know, the gay Jackie Robinson is a really stupid term and I'm glad we don't use it anymore. But, you know, things like that, because I think coming out stories bring the emotions to people a lot better. But does it mean the broader acceptance? Because for so many people, they thought, oh, once one comes out, then the floodgates are going to open. And clearly that doesn't happen and that won't happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do want to say, like, I like that's one thing with my story where I've been kind of people have said, well, you weren't out publicly at the time. And I'm like, how was I not out publicly it was on social media. People all around the Midwest and the country knew. It just wasn't on CNN or ESPN at the time. Like I was never hiding or or anything. It was just the country wasn't ready for that. But then now, like you look at it as like you're saying, what's the balance between coming out publicly and and more like just to your team and and your your family and friends? I mean, everyone's coming out experience is incredibly unique and they have to do it on their own terms and at their own comfort like comfort when they're when they're comfortable and it's just like, i don't want to push someone to come out publicly just for the sake of a cause if it's not safe for them in a sense of let's say mental health wise um yes i do think whenever someone can share their story whether it be coming out in sports or just any story of their their life experience I think it's great because it can really um, build empathy for whatever your cause or your experience or one of your identities may be so I think it is more a little bit more powerful sometimes when the story is shared publicly um, just because you're you're touching more people as you mentioned you know in the end your reach the reach is is greater like we now in today's tech heavy and internet driven kind of society like we can reach people on the other side of the globe we can reach people in countries where you know they can literally be killed for their sexuality or gender identity so like legally so um that's where i think the impact in the reach can be much greater in sharing a story publicly and as we see like throughout history sports can really create social change and so if we change sports culture to be more inclusive, we're going to ultimately change pop culture to be more inclusive as well. So the more sharing of stories, the better. But at, at the end of the day, they, the person whose story it is, they have to do it on their own terms, at their own time, at their own comfort, um, when they're comfortable. So that's kind of my, my feelings on the topic. Well, it's complicated. It's not straightforward. Yeah. And I mean, I can imagine that there are, I mean, because we're in D1 football, there's 85 players on the 85 scholarships, 120 
8 times 85, you can do the math. And if what we're talking even like 7 or 8% might identify of that, then that's a huge number of people. Like, yeah. there are a ton right now that are playing in college football that we don't know about and we might never know about. But to me, I always think of, like, just the one could make a huge difference for some people. And if you're ready, please do that. And uh, I can help if you want. I mean, I'm, not, I'm saying that casually, but I do like helping people tell their stories and find the best way to do it because I do think how important it is. And also, you know, the, the representation in media and having somebody who is out and somebody who is comfortable understanding these stories, I think really does make it different because now the media, while it's not nearly as diverse as it needs to be, it is more than it was. So yeah, hopefully that will change. It is Pride Month, although it doesn't feel like it because we can't go to parades and do anything uh, because, you know, pandemic. And uh, at this point, the streets are used for something a little bit more important, even though we in a normal world, we probably wouldn't be out. Uh, so what does pride mean to you now, uh, considering, you know, we have a chance to think about pride in a different way, considering the circumstances we're in this year? I mean, that's that's a very good question. I mean, pride for me has just always been a kind of being true to yourself and um, kind of never dimming your light because someone else feels uncomfortable. Like, always shining your light because in in doing so you're going to ultimately inspire others to do the same so right now with the unique situation we're in pandemic wise and with um the black lives matter movement and racial equality and all this i mean pride pride needs to be all-inclusive like we saw i think it was 2018 the philadelphia pride they changed their pride flag to have a brown and black stripe on it like that just needs to be the norm you know like we see racism in all segments of our society including the lgbtq community we see racism which is just infuriating to me so in the times we are now i i sit back and i think like we need to use this this pride to not focus on just the LGBTQ and, um, you know, movement and rights. Like we need to focus on building equality and, and equitable systems for our black and brown brothers and sisters. So that's kind of where I'm at now is trying to figure out how can I best show up and use my power and privilege to help those who have less power and privilege. And I think that's where, my pride focuses, um, especially this year, and I'm going to continue to tirelessly fight for for inclusion on on all levels of society. And actions do speak louder than words. And I'm exactly. not criticizing people who are doing that on Twitter and Instagram and what have you, but action, folks. Saying things are great, but doing them is another. And I like to focus on doing, you know, and that's why. I mean. Uh, you know, I could criticize a lot of different things about social media, but it's not the place for that. Uh, just do. If you feel so compelled, please do something. And there are plenty of ways to do something. And I'll end it on this. And this was a great interview, Eric. And again, thank you for coming on and doing what you've done. What's next for you and what's next for what you are trying to do? What would you want this next decade to look like in terms of inclusion in sports and doing what you do? I mean, next decade, that's a lot of years. Um, Five years. But I would say, no, it's okay. Ten ten years is fine. Five years is good, too. I honestly hope that I don't have to have a job in this space because it's not necessary in ten years. 
do I think that's realistically possible? No, I don't. Um, but it's not improbable. And if we continue to push, continue to fight for um, social justice in all segments of society, all of us, if we all educate ourselves, if we all use our power and privilege to to stand up for equality, we can actually get there and make improbable possible um, in 10 years. So I'm going to continue to do what I can um, in inclusion in sports and in inclusion in a broader in broader society for the next 10 years. Do I know exactly what that path is going to look like? No, um, which is fine, but I approach it with an open heart and an open mind um, to allow for not only my own personal growth, but vocationally let that grow. If I get pulled into another area of diversity and inclusion, that's, that's possible, but I will always champion, um, you know, all areas of inclusion, um, not just in sports. So we'll see where the next 10 years takes, takes us. And, uh, I guess a final follow-up to that is, uh, is this the time, like, we see, like, what outside people, not what us, not what we would describe, but what outside people would describe as a maybe, like, generation-defining athlete or somebody like that coming out. You know what I mean? Like, because we've seen great people come out, and they all matter, but, you know, is there a, is there a space in these next couple years for somebody, an active NFL player to come out or something like that? Is that something we're going to see, or should we be looking somewhere else for the true sign of progress? I mean... I don't know if we should hold our hopes on for any of that, but I do think there is definitely space for that. And I think the time is now, you know, more than more than 10 years down the road, because it's only going to help um, push the movement even further. So I think there's definitely space for it. Will we see it? I mean, who knows? Because again, there's so many factors that go into whether an athlete wants to come out publicly or not. Um, so ultimately they have to do it on their own terms and I don't want to push someone, um, if they're not comfortable or ready, but it would only help. So I can say, if you do it, you're going to be a hero to too many and you're going to forever change sports mm. for the better. Good way of ending it. You've already plugged yourself once, but you can plug yourself again now with all of your, social media and whatnot <laughs> okay well yeah if anyone wants to get involved with the, the lgbt sports safe inclusion program um or just wants to follow along my journey feel free to reach out to me um at eric lucian my last name is spelled l-u-e-s-h-e-n um, a lot of people like to put a c in there but there's no c and you can just email me at eric at lgbt safe.com and then we have our website lgbt safe.com as well if you want to go there and look through some of the work that we do and if you want to get get involved or um, if you know any uh, coaches administrators or athletics departments that are interested send them my way i'd love to help and yeah happy pride i hesit hesitantly say happy pride because it's a very strange time but it is pride month so let's find pride and let's give back to those who historically have been suppressed or discriminated against Good message. Thank you, Eric, for coming on, and uh, you, you go do that because you're good at it. And uh, we need the Thank people you. who are fighters to keep fighting.
I, I've talked with people who say, don't be discouraged. If things look bleak, it doesn't matter because you've already made zero impacts in one way and you're going to continue to do that. If you stop fighting, who's going to fight then? Very Exactly. Important. We need everyone. Keep, the, keep fighting the good fight and other people will follow along. Thank you for joining us on what was actually lucky episode 13. Hopefully the next show is in a month from now.